you would please turn your, with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Mark. We'll be in Mark chapter 11 today. On Palm Sunday, Jesus had openly presented himself as the Messiah and King, which is what the first 10 verses of Mark 11 were about. We just finished covering those. The Messiah and King. As he triumphantly entered Jerusalem on a donkey with the people shouting, Save us now, Messiah. Words that were a direct and very specific fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah 9, verse 9. There were two basic reactions to Jesus' declaration. One was the praise from the people, even if they didn't understand all that Jesus meant. And the second basic reaction was a very hostile one from the religious leaders. Before going back to Bethany that Sunday evening, Jesus did what we would call a reconnaissance operation as he checked out the temple in preparation for Monday's planned return. That's what we see in verse 11 of Mark chapter 11. On Monday morning, as Jesus and his disciples were coming back into Jerusalem from Bethany, which is about two miles east of Jerusalem, on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, Jesus pronounces a curse upon a fig tree. Then in Jerusalem, in an act of purification and judgment, Jesus cleanses the temple. On Tuesday morning, as Jesus and his disciples were again coming back into Jerusalem after spending the night in Bethany, The disciples noticed that the fig tree Jesus had cursed the day before was now completely withered. And this results then in a question from Peter, of course. Jesus then answers and he gives further explanation and teaching. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 11 through 25. Mark 11, 11 through 25. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. That was directly on the heels of the triumphal entry. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it 
a den of robbers. And the chief priest and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yes, there is a whole lot in this passage. Mark actually takes it the way it happened day by day. Matthew, in his parallel account, offers Uh, he condenses everything in just one story. So this, in Mark's account, gives you an idea of what's going on in this Passion Week. Sunday was Palm Sunday. He went to scope things out that evening after being in Jerusalem, went back to Bethany, came in the next morning, cursed the fig tree, then cleansed the temple, then went back, and on Tuesday was going back into Jerusalem again, when the disciples saw the withered fig tree. Keep that in mind as we go through this today. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Israel is compared to a fig tree or a vine. In Jeremiah 8, 13, the Lord says this about his wayward people. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. In Hosea 9, we read, Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. Ephraim is stricken, their root is dried up, and they shall bear no fruit. Jesus used this image too earlier in his ministry in a parable in Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. There he spoke about a fig tree that wasn't producing fruit, and so the owner was going to cut it down. And there we read, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this tree, says the owner, the vine dresser, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And the vine dresser answered him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure Then, if it should bear fruit the next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The fruitless tree represented the barren religion of Israel, as Jesus found it during the three years of his ministry. And its destruction represented God's impending judgment on it. And this is what we see demonstrated in our passage today. 
with both the fig tree and the temple cleansing. Jesus' wrath was turned upon the religious leaders, especially in the temple cleansing, right after he had provided the strange curse upon this fig tree, the withering of which was discovered by the disciples the next day, the next morning, which was Tuesday morning. Jesus, despite the shouts of acclamation at his triumphal entry, was being rejected by Israel. And the time for judgment was coming. And this is why the fig tree was cursed and then withered, which is really a symbolic and powerful picture. So this morning, we must proclaim right here at the beginning, with all the clarity possible, the serious warning of how God views any religion or worship that does not produce genuine spiritual fruit. The question is, do we get this? Well, here's one way that'll help us. Out of the seven historical, real historical churches of the first century that Jesus tells John to write to in Revelation 2 and 3, only two did not receive a dire warning. That means five out of those seven churches were sternly warned by Christ himself. First was Ephesus. We hear this. You have abandoned the love you had first. Remember, repent, and do the works you did at first. I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The third church in this series of letters is Pergamum. Therefore, repent of a dangerous compromise with some false teaching. If not, I will come to you soon and war against the ones who hold these false teachings with the sword of my mouth. The fourth church there is Theotira. Theotira was tolerating a woman teaching and seducing Christ's servants to practice sexual immorality and take part in idolatrous practices that were hooked in with their livelihoods. Tolerate here means that the church forgave the woman even though she didn't repent and actually refused to repent. And Christ then warns, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who join her false teaching I will throw into great tribulation unless they, what's the big word, repent. The fifth church is Sardis. Sardis, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. And then, of course, probably the most famous besides Ephesus is Laodicea, the seventh church. You are neither hot or cold. I will spit you out of my mouth. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Yeah, this is serious. God has always reproved and disciplined his people, his church, because he loves them. And as we continue now with the temple cleansing, we've got to keep in mind the contextual historical message as well as the continued warning for us. 
In verses 15 through 19, we see Jesus' second cleansing of the temple. This is not just an isolated event of righteous anger directed at hypocrisy and thievery. Many people try to limit it just to that. That's a lot, but that's not all. Jesus' temple cleansing also had a very specific and a unique purpose. And that was to demonstrate once again his messianic claims, his credentials. Mark began his gospel in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 11, by asserting that what the prophet Malachi wrote in Malachi 3.1 was fulfilled by John the Baptist about a messenger sent to prepare the way for God's Messiah. But the whole thrust of that paragraph, down through verse 4 of Malachi 3, is that God will send the Messiah to purify the temple and his people. The Jews knew these words from Malachi very well and taught that the Messiah would purify the temple when he came. So as Jesus cleanses the temple in our passage today, he is presenting himself as the Messiah, carrying out this particular role. Jesus disclosed who he was, both by the way he came into Jerusalem and here, He asserted his claim to authority over the religious life of Israel. And we learn from John's gospel that Jesus started out his ministry by doing the very same thing in John 2, cleansing the temple. And now he's ending his ministry with quite the exclamation point. The first cleansing was a warning. Guess what the second one is? No more warning. It's a statement of judgment upon the leadership of Israel especially. So what was the problem at the temple? You've got a bulletin insert that shows an architectural bird's eye view of the actual temple building But that's only a small part of the whole area. So first, this is a huge complex which Herod the Great built from the one returning, the returning exiles had built 500 years earlier. The temple itself, as I just mentioned, was relatively small. And it consisted of the holy place and the most holy place, Divided by a curtain. The most holy place is also called what? Holy of Holies. The holy place where the priest ministered was a part of this 90 foot long, 30 foot wide, 90 feet high building. You ever seen a building that was as high as it was long? Okay, 90 feet In our views, nine, ten stories. It's very large and gorgeous. 
The holy place was only 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 90 feet high. And that's where the priest ministered. It housed the lampstand, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. The most holy place, the Holy of Holies, that was the place that only the high priest could go into once a year. And it was only 30 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 90 feet high. Look around. 30 feet only goes halfway down this aisle, 90 feet high. Okay, you got a picture of that? We'll help with that in just a minute. This is where the Ark of the Covenant was. There were also several courts outside of the temple itself. So there's the temple building divided into between the, the holy place and the holy of holies in the back. There, the courts outside of this structure itself were those of priest courts that ran around here outside and then this was the the women's court was here so this is the priest court and this is the women's court and there's a lot of other buildings and stuff there numerous gates there's colonnades huge columns everywhere you look but this plaza court like area outside of these buildings and courts and there's cloisters and storage areas on the east, south, and west. This is where much of the teaching and gathering would take place. And that is this court going around. North, by the way, is looking off this way. South, this way. So this court was still just for Jews. This thing was so big on the Temple Mount that we don't even have the court of the Gentiles on it. But we, all, all you have to do is just see this huge area that goes completely around here for the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the, on the outside of this were some buildings and all sorts of areas with big tall walls. And you notice this has little entryways and it's not full. It's about half, a couple of feet high. See that? On this barrier was a sign for the Gentiles. And it said this, No Gentile may enter within the railing around the sanctuary and within the enclosure. Whosoever should be caught will render himself liable to the death penalty, which will inevitably follow. So, the Gentiles were held at bay here, mixed Of course, the Jews were all over the place, too. This place is just humongous. We didn't get to see it in 2000 because the Intifida was going on, and we couldn't uh, get up there safely. So we looked from afar. This is where the Jews and the Gentiles could mingle together outside of this little wall all around and, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge. It's also where the money changers were and the selling of sacrificial animals took place. So when Jesus talks about cleansing the temple and it mentions that part, that's where he was. 
special areas in there. Remember, this is Passover week. There are thousands and thousands of people. Can you see how the Jews would think the Gentiles' court was not as sacred as the inner courts? Is that very apparent from your architectural design? It's like barrier, 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 big building, the one where only the high priest gets in. It was pretty obvious. The part of all this that upset Jesus was that all the congestion in that outer court brought on by the buying and selling kept people who wanted to truly worship from being able to have access. The altar, by the way, is the women's court over here, right inside this gate is the altar, and there was a balcony areas over here where the women could actually see through to see the sacrifices. Still a lot of divisions, but that's the way it worked. So estimates are that Jerusalem was probably up to 10 times bigger as far as people there during the Passover week. Um, it's hard for us to imagine even what this would be like. Um, so there was these transactions of money changers and sale of sacrificial animals. And all of this was known as the Bazaar of Annas, whose chief priest and other associates actually oversaw all these temple actually franchises. And it gets worse. The merchants would buy the right to a concession for selling sacrificial animals or exchanging money. I mean, why travel Jerusalem and having to bring your own sacrifices? You could just buy them there. And if you needed to exchange the right kind of money to put in the box, you could do it there. These merchants then would also have to pay a percentage of their profits to the head guy, the bazaar of Annas. They had quite a racket going because the priest had to approve of the sacrificial animals. We starting to get a picture of what was going on here? So how many animals brought from home do you think passed the priest's exam? Some estimate that a person would have to pay ten times as much for a temple-bought animal as compared to what the animal was really worth. So, the problem at the temple is simple. It's extortion, which Jesus identifies and condemns in verse 17. Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus quotes there two Old Testament phrases that were from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. We should get this. The temple was supposed to be a place of worship, quiet meditation, contemplation, praise, devotion, where God's people could draw close to him and worship. 
sacrifice and offerings and could seek his will and blessing. It was not meant to be a combination marketplace, stockyard, and bank where hucksters and charlatans carried on their greedy enterprises under the guise of serving and worshiping the Lord. The sanctuary of God had become, as we read, a sanctuary of robbers. And it should be easy to see then that one of the underlying issues here is the commercialization of religion. Do you think this is a danger for us in our day? Yeah. In so many more ways than we even see it here. And one of the reasons is because we live in an age where materialism and sophisticated advertising have merged so cohesively that marketers can actually drive demand. What that means is that marketers can actually create demand. The question then is whether the materialism and the very sophisticated advertising that literally inundates us every day from every angle possible has affected our understanding and our expectancy of what we're doing here during Sunday services. It's the air we breathe we must realize that it affects us all to some degree. Do we see and understand our need to worship weekly with our brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we see the personal need as well as the corporate need? Do we appreciate the grace of God in saving us in Christ so much that we desire to meet together, to know Him better, to worship Him, to pray, to sing, lift up his name together. So, Jesus literally drove the money changers and the extortioners out of the temple courts. And we read that he overturned their tables and the seats They were sitting in, especially at the money changer tables. And he kept anyone, we read, from carrying anything else through there. In Matthew's parallel account, we see two other things that happened that Mark doesn't record the details of. Not that the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests were already not mad. They were already violently, furiously ticked off at what Jesus was doing. But then, we read in Matthew 21, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, that's the way Matthew puts it. Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. He probably felt some affinity 
for what Jesus had just done. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. These chief priests and scribes were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And that's directly from Psalm 8, verse 2. In contrast to the extortion and the commercialization of religion, what do we see? We see first the care of the needy versus the exploitation that Jesus made a rather strong statement about. Jesus welcomes the blind and the lame, and he healed them there. Jesus' brother James writes in James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So while most of the Jewish authorities of Jesus' day actually did not even allow the handicapped to offer sacrifices at the temple, here we see Jesus welcoming them. Humble compassion is the exact opposite of exploitation of any sort. And what it looks like from Matthew, the way he wrote it, is that Jesus did the cleansing first, got it out of the way, then the lame and those people that needed to, that he wanted to be able to worship, drove forward in these courts where he could see them and meet their needs. Second, we see something else that we've seen many times before. And that is the heartfelt praise from the children. Versus the hypocrisy and the pretense of righteousness. The children were still what? They were still echoing what they'd heard the day before when Jesus rode into town. Some of you are still plagued by that. You teach your child to sing. It is wonderful. And then you cannot turn the record, the tape, the, it off. It's everywhere, all the time, the same song. And I hope you appreciate that. Yes, even grandparents get to experience this wonderful phenomenon. Can you hear the kids? What have they heard? The whole city singing, praising God with these words when Jesus wrote in. And they're still echoing echoing all that, drove the chief priests, Pharisees, and the scribes crazy because they were echoing truth. How often does that happen? Many times. Many times. Because what does Hosanna, the son of David, actually mean? Hosanna means save us now. 
Don't you know how much that grated on the ears of the chief priests and scribes, especially as these very real, up-personal, in-your-face healings took place right before their eyes. We see once again how Jesus uses children as a way to communicate the need for a humble and dependent trust and faith. Genuine worship that God accepts is not the religion or the worship of commercial success or captivating enterprise or exciting experience, you fill in the rest. But it's worship of humble, genuine praise of Jesus as the Son of God, a Savior and King. You know, there's millions of definitions of worship, but I found a really short one that I think hits it. Worship is the act of ascribing honor and majesty to our Creator. That's the basic definition. And how could that go on in the midst of all that mess of buying and selling and cheating people and excluding many? The contrast is extraordinary as we see Jesus quoting Psalm 8 to men who were acclaimed experts of the scripture in their day and they were thought of being that by everybody in Israel and yet they didn't really understand it at all. Don't miss the point that the words of Psalm 8 are words of praise to God. To God. So Jesus was once again clearly claiming to be who? God. When Jesus comes to his temple, what he offers is himself, not a pattern for success. And in our verse 18, we see that. We read that the people were astonished by his teaching. And that the chief priests and scribes were seeking a way to to destroy him because of that. But remember, they've been seeking a way to destroy him ever since he first confronted them in the first part of Mark. On Monday evening after this, Jesus and his disciples walked the two miles back to Bethany, which is across the Kidron Valley on the far side of the Mount of Olives. Then on Tuesday morning, they head back to Jerusalem. And on the way, they saw the fig tree withered away, and Mark writes, to the roots. In other words, these weren't scrappy little animals that defoliated it. The fig tree. Peter sees what's happened to the tree. Of course, they all did. And he can't understand, they can't, how it withered so fast. So he immediately asked Jesus about it. Well, there's something we need to know about fig trees. In the spring, the fig trees in Israel produce small green nodules, which are actually edible, even though they don't taste nearly as good 
as the fully ripened figs late, later or in the early summer. But about the same time as the green fig nod, nodules appear, the tree sprouts its leaves. So if you saw a fig tree with leaves, what, what, what were you thinking? That it should have started to bear some fruit. And if you're hungry, even a little bit would be okay. That's the implication. In other words, a tree and leaf, we've been talking about commercialism, so we might as well continue. If you see a tree and leaf, it's advertising that it has fruit. But this fig tree had no fruit at all. It was a case of false advertising, which Jesus used then as an illustration of hypocrisy. In religion. This is what we could say is a profession of faith by someone without any real fruit. This has always been a problem. Ezekiel 33, God is speaking to the prophet Ezekiel. In the Old Testament, as for you, your people who talk together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you say. But they will not do it. For with sensual talk in their mouths they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings sensual songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. This has always been a problem. It still is a problem. Profession without fruit. Jesus' teaching here has two parts. Israel's religion focused as it was on its leaders who made sure that everyone knew who they were and that everybody respected them, gave up their seats for them, etc., etc., etc. It was not producing fruit. It was hypocritical. In any religion worship with the same problem, what is Jesus telling us? Will wither like this fig tree. Why? And here's where Mark's text really helps. Because there's no nourishment from its roots. The withering is what will happen to any church which is outwardly giving the appearance of worship in life and practice but whose people fail to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. The great Anglican evangelical J.C. Ryle wrote this, Open sin and avowed unbelief no doubt slay their thousands, but profession without practice slays its tens of thousands. I think he expanded the little song that the Israelites sang after David defeated Goliath. 
It may look like in verses 22 through 25 at the end of our text that Jesus proceeds to an entirely different topic of true faith and how powerful prayer is. But what he's really doing is connecting everything that's happened Sunday and Monday by using what the disciples had just seen, the example of causing the fig tree to wither. And several things immediately stick out if we step back and look at it like this. Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem just as Scripture had prophesied the Messiah would. The people wanted the Messiah to come, but for a lot of the wrong reasons. The religious leaders hated the idea of Jesus the Messiah, so they were plotting to kill him. The fig tree, a symbol of Israel, so there must be a good reason that Jesus cursed this particular fig tree. And there is. The tree should have borne fruit, but it hadn't. It looked healthy, but it wasn't. Israel had plenty, more than we can ever put up with. It had plenty of lip service and outward worship, but its worship fell far short of being genuine, of being true. It was mostly pretense. What's pretense? Pretense is claiming something that's not supported by facts. It's a mere show or display with no real substance. It's the attempt to gain a certain condition the wrong way. And the religious leaders were mostly to blame in leading their people astray. So by cleansing the temple... Jesus asserted his authority as God incarnate, predicted its destruction. I hope we realize that. By the way, how long would that be? Forty years. Less than 40 years. It would be leveled by the Romans. The realization that this cursed fig tree had completely withered should have been seen as illustrating God's coming judgment and condemnation of religious hypocrisy and the lack of true faith. But again, these disciples were just amazed that the tree had withered so fast. Wow, look, it withered fast. What happened? Don't you just see yourself when you read this. So by launching into his teaching here on faith and prayer, Jesus is giving the remedy for overcoming the embedded and seemingly unmovable hypocritical religious practices of Judaism. You got that? This is his remedy for this condition. It would take the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, true faith and prayer of his people to overcome the heart's enslavement to the hypocritical religious practices of that day. They were so ingrained. Some of us think we have baggage because we grew up in this or this or this and now we are a Christian and we are still holding on to it. Yeah, we've got it. But these people... They lived, breathed, ate it 
Do you see what Jesus is getting at here? This is connected. So Jesus uses a picture that his disciples actually had from the top of Mount of the Olive, Mount of Olives. When they went back to Bethany, they went through the Kidron Valley, which is that deep ditch thing between there, and then they climbed up the Mount of Olives, and Bethany was on the other side. When they got up there, guess what they could see to the east? Look at your text. Mount Olives. If you took the Mount of Olives and threw it in the closest sea, which one is the closest? The Dead Sea. You could see it from up there. Extraordinary. Notice the last part of verse 22 through 24. Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Jesus refused to do spectacular miracles for the antagonistic Jewish leaders. So he's not endorsing this kind of incredible display just for the ability to draw crowds or attract people or increase the people following him. Got that? In fact, this is a figure of speech. Meaning that seemingly impossible things are possible through the power of God. When the people of God take him at his word and pray in a believing way, this should be an encouragement to pray often, well, and rightly. And it should be an encouragement if they are enslaved by the trappings of the Judaistic system that is hypocritical and full of pretense and and pointing them in the wrong direction. How do they get out of that? He just told them. It's going to be illustrated the rest of this week. In two more days is the Lord's Supper. His point and context is that overcoming the religious enslavement to outward religious activity without a heart that knows the Lord and serves him and loves him looks and seems impossible to do and will take great faith and power to accomplish because a mountain always has and always will symbolize something that is immovable. Do we understand this? But being in Christ and seeing his power at work to save and redeem and change hearts means that prayer which he outlines here, he kind of throws together a whole bunch of what he's taught already. It must be an expression of humble, childlike trust. It must be in submission to God's sovereign will. It must be in Christ's name, which basically means to be in harmony with all that Jesus has revealed about himself. And it must rest on his merits. And it It is effective and pleasing to God only when it comes from a loving heart. Notice that at the end? Why is that in there? 
This is what verse 25 is talking about. And whenever you stand praying, which is the posture of the Jewish men who prayed, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your Father also is in heaven may forgive you in your trespasses. Does that sound familiar? Yes, it's a part of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And that means exactly what you think it does. Holding any grudges or bitterness against anyone for any real or perceived offense is a requirement for prayer yourself. You must forgive in your heart. Now, on a really personal level, there's a lot more going on here. How was Jesus personally caring for the men that he was preparing here, his disciples? Look what Jesus has in front of him. A couple of days away. And yet he takes time to prepare these guys knowing that they don't have a clue what's going on right now. So that after the fact, but what is the fact? Well, let's think about that. The misunderstanding and the expectations that they had centered on immediate deliverance from Rome. And what would happen to all those expectations and dreams? What would happen to all their plans for leaving and following Christ when he was executed three days later? Gone. Jesus would be betrayed. He would be arrested. And the disciples would scatter in crazy fear in the middle of the night fleeing for their lives. Peter would deny Christ three times. Jesus would be left alone to finish his mission. And yet, what does he say here? This sounds like way too simple. Have faith in God. You think they'll remember that? Yeah, he will help them when he's resurrected. The fear and the panic you will feel, he's saying, the anxiety that you feel, the death of your dreams, the death of me, the world you were expecting that blows up in your face, the physical threat to your own lives as you see me crucified will so overwhelm you, it will seem like a mountain that cannot move and is smothering you. Remember from where they were staying each night, they could see the sea. Now that little thing that he said all of a sudden made a little more sense. Truly I say to you, Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believe what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. 
Hey, if he'd have turned around and said, you guys, would you, would you just pay attention to me for a little bit here? I'm getting ready to die for you, and you don't even have a clue what's going on. All you're worried about is you're going to be arrested along too. I've told you that, but you're still not believing it. You expect me to do a bigger miracle here on the Temple Mount than what the Pharisees would want. Pharisees still wouldn't believe, even if I did it. What would you guys do if I got rid of Rome right here? You'd want to be on my right hand, my left hand. Your mother would come in to argue your case. You would be, you're looking at the wrong things. You have the wrong priorities. You do not understand. So he gives them this figure of speech, which they're going to remember. In fact, the next time they go back up there on the next night, I'm wondering whether it will ever sink in until after he's resurrected. Have faith in God. Peter said he was God. They just hadn't put it together yet. Peter would also deny him three times. And out of that, Jesus restores the man. He brings them all together. And they are humble before him in a way they never were before. Only one wasn't martyred. This is absolutely amazing. We're now into Tuesday as we go through the rest of the week. Let's pray. Oh God, these gospels are just such a gift. Your whole your word is a is a tremendous gift. There's something about these stories that put together all the truth you teach everywhere in your word that hit us right where you know we need to be hit in our hearts. We see the hypocrisy, we see our own. We see extortion, we know that we do the same kind of things. We long to serve you genuinely, sincerely, to sing to you with hearts that have been freed from the sin that still abides in us. We know that has been paid for, but we know as long as we live, we'll still be tempted, we'll still wander, but we can grow in our knowledge of you where we love you so much that we want to respond, first of all, in the face of all those things, by having faith in you, by thinking about what our expectations are in this life to be yours, to be your ambassadors, to let you change us from the inside out. We agree with that until it gets tough and we don't want you to do anymore. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Thank you that we can run to the cross that is just a couple of days away for our Savior. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for Christ completing his mission. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for our benediction? I think we need one from number six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. You're dismissed.